You are listening to Digfin Box. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.ditchfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation and finance. This is Ditchfing Box. Welcome back. Today's podcast, we have Hua Yi Dong. Hua Yi has quite an accomplished career and has built some serious expertise in the world of electronic trading systems. He is currently the managing director and head of electronic trading solutions at Daiwa Capital Markets, having previously been with UBS, focusing on their algorithmic trading platform. Before that, he was with ITG as their principal engineer in their algorithmic trading group. On this episode, James picks Hua Yi's brains on the future of algo trading and electronic trading. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is James from Digfin, and I am extremely pleased today to be speaking with Hua Yi Dong, who is uh, Daiwa Capital Markets Managing Director in the Equity Department, and uh, Hua Yi heads up uh, globally, not just in Hong Kong, but globally for Daiwa uh, Electronic Trading Solutions. So welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, great to have you here, uh, Hua Yi. So, um, why don't you give us an overview of being a Japanese firm? Uh, we could talk about fintech in the Japanese B2B space uh, and maybe also what you're seeing and how it's different uh, in, in East Asia, ex-Japan. Um, but maybe you can just start with a, you know, kind of what you've been doing from, a, from, a, from the context of being in a Japanese shop. Okay, so um, I work in electronic trading, which everyone is more familiar with if we use the term like DMA or DSAs, which usually stands for direct market access or direct strategy access. So we spend a lot of our time on improving market access so the clients can execute orders directly in the exchanges or any one of these off-exchange venues um, quickly as well as uh, in an error-proof way, as well as we build uh, algos so the uh, clients can use our algos to minimize the execution costs yeah. and the transaction costs as well associated with any kind of trades. Um, so from that perspective, it's quite similar to any bulge breakfast firms like uh, Goldman Sachs as well as uh, UBS and etc. etc. But the uniqueness that we are Japan-based and uh, we are uh, one of the largest brokers in Japan is it gives us a lot of quality resources that's available in Japan. Like what's, what, what's available in Japan that you might not necessarily find somewhere else? Number one is Japanese language skills. Okay, all right, that's true. <laughs> so, my, my Japanese language skills are pretty limited, I have to admit. So from a, from a market-specific perspective, for anyone who has worked in sales side, Japan is quite difficult to tap into as a market. Obviously, from a uh, global capital market, especially on the equity cash side, um, Japan is usually marked as the second largest market just outside of uh, uh, U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, as being the most active on the equity cash side. Uh, obviously, 
China wants to take over it, but then it dropped back down again uh, on as the top five rather than number two. Um, so from a Japan perspective, you really need people who fully understand the market, fully understand the structure, fully understand the microstructure of the market, as well as understanding its client. So we do focus a lot on our Japanese clients. Yeah. And one of the key behavior for Japanese is they're very, very careful. They're extremely quality oriented. So from that perspective, it's a society that almost allows no errors, right. allows um, only highly quality uh, products can, can be released. Right. So, I mean, we see this in the obsession with uh, reconciliation down to the single yen, which is more of a, a practice than a rule um, and, and so on. But let's talk about that in a, a fintech or a technology mm. point of view, because what you're talking about, the way you describe that, <clears throat> that would have been probably just as accurate to say 20 years ago as it would be now, right? So what is this, you know, we, Japan went through electronification, uh, FinTech 1.0 of, of its stock markets about 10 years ago, mm. Arrowhead came in on the TSC yep. and so on. Um, where, where are we now in terms of the, the next wave of, of technological advancement, AI, robotics, et cetera? You know, is that, does that play any different kind of role in the Japanese marketplace than it would in any other large capital market. Absolutely. So uh, I think the key thing is we have to take a step back. Okay. Japan has a aging society where most of the uh, Japanese population is elders versus younger generations. Mm -hmm. So that brings a lot of societal difficulties. Number one is who's going to take care of those elder people once they uh, get to a certain age? Mm -hmm. And who's going to do the mundane work where most of the uh, younger generation wants to do more engineering, more related to uh, higher-end jobs? So Japan has been focusing a lot on artificial intelligence designs, especially on the robotics and the RPAs, the robotic right. process automations. Um, so down to self-driving cars as well as uh, um, small motor vehicles that can take elder people uh, back home mm -hmm. or robotics that can help to fold your clothes without a maid. Obviously in Hong Kong we get used to the concept of having a maid. Right. Okay. Whereas in Japan you just don't have that kind of luxury. Yeah. So Japan as a society invests a lot of time and money on robotics which in turn place into the whole AI research. So uh, driving this more toward capital market is uh, we have a lot of uh, Japanese researchers as well as universities who focus on AI and process automation, right. which is basically the whole point behind electronic trading yeah. is to automate certain tasks that the trader has previously performed and we try to make it more consistent, make it more automatic, error-proof. Um, so we're working closely with the Japanese universities to adapt AI into the whole trading space. Um, a couple of key concepts here is uh, algorithmic trading has always been based on statistics mm -hmm. and quantitative analysis, which we used to call quants. And now, um, instead of using humans to identify models where you can use to predict the future of the market, for example, um, the volume predictions on how the market is going to execute, where is it going to go, or the spread predictions, we will start to utilize AIs to identify features and see if AI can come up with models that can predict 
the, uh, the market better than a statistical model, which okay. humans come up with. Is this something that is now being deployed, or is it still at a proof of concept stage, or are we talking still uh, a little bit sci-fi here? So it is uh, being deployed right now. We deployed the first version in our production with AI predicting the volume. And overall, we're seeing a uh, volume prediction improvement of 3 to 5%. Mm-hmm. And we're going to release the second version, which is more um, sci-fi rather than science, uh, in September. Um, and that's heavily under testing right now. So, so the previously released version is more historical volume prediction. And the uh, version that we're going to release in September into production has to do with real-time prediction of the market for the next five minutes or so. Okay. So very short-term minutes. You know, we're talking about strategies that are trading over just a, a very a, a blip, basically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's not yet ready to manage even, say, a day's worth of volume. Uh, it is. So we actually takes X number of days. Unfortunately, I cannot specify that number. We do take X number of days uh, of historical volume, and then we can predict for the whole day. Or um, we do have a different process, which is unfortunately not managed by my team. So again, I want to clarify the difference between sell side and buy side. Okay. So from a buy side perspective, they're more interested in finding the instrument that will generate the largest revenue or the largest price tick up um, rather than looking at your execution cost. So from sell side perspective, we're looking at executing your order right now without causing the market too much impact. Okay. Or without causing you too much of a cost. That's that's usually in the um, execution space terms. Um, so from our perspective, what we really care about is not even seconds or minutes. We care about milliseconds. Mm. We care about what the next trade will be. How are we going to impact the market? So the faster you can calculate all those impact models as well as predict where the market is going um, and then blend in your trade into your prediction then you can almost predict if you should execute more now or if you should wait a couple of minutes before you start to send your trades to the market. Um, so from a sales side perspective, we really care about the microscopes. We really care about the next milliseconds, next second, next minute. Right. Whereas uh, for the buy side, they care more about the days, months, weeks, or even yeah. years. And where does, <clears throat> how, how do you measure this? Is it, is it through conventional transaction cost analysis or... Uh, is it more just around latency? Uh, you know, what, what are the things that you use to, to measure if this is going to have an impact? So for now, from, uh, uh, from an impact model perspective, yes, we use TCAs to model. We use a specific impact model to, um, through our TCA systems to measure what the impact is going to be. What do you think will be the, over time, the impact of using more AI tools combined with, I, I guess, better, faster algorithms, whether it's, it's for a broker trying to execute on behalf of a client better or perhaps for themselves, uh, or, or buy sides looking to, to generate alpha in their trading strategy. Where do you, where do you see this going? And um, maybe we can, we'll, we'll stick with the Japanese context because obviously that's a very electronic, large liquid market. Um, it, you know, <clears throat> in terms of job roles and, and ability to do things. So I think the key thing with uh, algorithmic trading, again, let me take a step back, is before Algo came on onto the scene, we had human traders, we had 
potentially market inefficiencies where the price of the stock doesn't necessarily reflect all the information behind it. Now, as we start to get more electronic trading rights, um, as well as uh, introduce more algo into the market, the market became more and more efficient, which means the, the bid and ask spread has been reducing. Um, the impact of the order uh, on specific stock has been reducing unless the system was going nuts. For example, the uh, Taiwan issue, which Barclay had previously. Um, but if we had all these electronic systems, which is executing orders on your behalf, it actually makes the market more efficient. Mm -hmm. So most of the order prices do reflect uh, the actual information behind it, as well as the market sentiment, as well as the uh, buy and sell intentions, rather than people starting to play, oh, there's a cheaper price on this market, let's try to push this market rather than the other market. So algorithmic trading helps to reduce inefficiencies and make the market more efficient. So from my point of view, the more people start to use AI and start to predict the short-term volume going up or down, which essentially helps our client to reduce the cost. By the way, our client has clients as well. Our client's client is basically the retail customers, potentially. Or the institutional investors. Like or the institutional yeah. large investors, which eventually ends up to be individuals at the right. end. Right. Um, so from our client's perspective, the more we help them to reduce execution cost, the better predictions they can make on which stock to pick, and thus eventually make the stock market even more efficient. How testable is this uh, through, obviously we're dealing with, with microstructure here, so you know, macro trends may not be relevant to this discussion, but you know, when people talk about onboarding new technologies, particularly with anything around performance or asset management, it's... You know, you haven't been through the cycle. You have it hasn't been mm. tested, or if there's an outage at the exchange or something like that. Um, how resilient do you think these these AI driven models will be? So the way we implemented it is uh, it's a complementary service for our existing algo, mm -hmm. which means if it goes down, it's not going to impact us. Um, the way we do that is we continue to run our statistical models, so we will always have a backup prediction using statistical and quantitative models, whereas the AI will be an enhancement. Um, so if the AI feed is coming in, we will utilize that and compare it against our statistical model. And if the difference is too great, we will ignore the AI input. So we always use the, statist the statistical model as a basis to say this is the accurate value. But if there is an enhancement, we can add on top of it. But if it varies too much, then we're going to ignore the enhancement. We're assuming the system is going wrong in some cases. We've been talking about some of the very specifics of, of what you're doing in-house. Mm. Um, maybe we can broaden out. What do you see generally? How is, or to what extent, or maybe not at all, is, are these new waves of technologies uh, changing the patterns of how people interact with each other on the trading floor? Um, the way that buy and sell sides are going to behave toward one another. Do you see any change, or is it just a better version of what we've already been going through since the... To tell the truth, it's a better version of what we have been going through. Mm -hmm. So the concept of electronic trading is obviously um, very groundbreaking. Yeah. But every change, including incorporating AI into it, is just another... Um, another involve... Um, and there's a progress in the right direction. It's right. not an evolution, mm -hmm. um, nor is it um, a big change similar to how electronic trading has replaced the uh, traditional the brokerage right. functions. Yeah. 
Um, so from my point of view is the buy side are getting smarter. They are introducing AIs into their cost analysis, uh, trade cost analysis. They're evaluating brokers using the algo wheel. And they're introducing AIs to pick the right brokers, uh, especially right after Mifid 2. These kind of things are occurring more and more. So the buy side are getting smarter and the sell side are providing better and always enhancing our services to meet their requirements. How, how much of a difference is there in terms of what these new technologies bring in large liquid markets like Japan versus smaller emerging markets uh, where you, you may not have as much data or you may not have as much turnover to play with? What, what's, is, is there a difference in how um, AI will work in a Japan versus, say, I don't know, a Philippines or a Indonesia? I think it really depends on how you apply the data. So for Japan, obviously, we have much more data. We have huge amounts of market data, as well as futures data, FX data. So there's a lot of data that we have to consider and input into the uh, AI model in order to have a proper prediction. Whereas for smaller markets, let's say Indonesia, Philippines, it's highly unlikely we will have the number of amounts of market data right. updates versus Japan. So the model will be slightly different, um, but the end results we're predicting uh, should match similar performance as what we do have in Japan. You're based in Hong Kong. Um, what are you looking at that's different outside of Japan versus what you find in Japan when it comes to technologies that you can adopt or partner with? So I think in Japan is, uh, again, I have to go back to this carefulness and, and quality perspective, is people take technologies very, very seriously. And uh, the research they do are mostly written, number one, in Japanese. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult. Well, I shouldn't say it's very difficult, but a lot of the core research they have done is still remains in Japanese. That's right. why I kept on stressing. One of the lucky things we do have is we have a lot of Japanese staff who are able to read and fully understand all these researches and start to apply them in the local market. Whereas uh, outside of uh, Japan, there's a lot of collaboration in the fin fintech community. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we have a better idea on how to predict the volume in this kind of way, we will start to communicate with other companies and see if they're following the same process. Much more willing to share outside of Japan, but inside of Japan, the universities play a big role okay. uh, versus what's outside of Japan. Ex-Japan, in, in whether it's China or Taiwan or, or Hong Kong or Korea, where are you finding, what, what kind of stories are you finding that are very interesting in the fintech world? What's relevant for capital markets right now? I think what's relevant for capital market is number one, big data plus AI, mm -hmm. uh, is the amounts of data we previously had, including market data, trading behavior data, uh, potential uh, impact model calculated data. And so there's a lot of data that we previously had. And uh, the way we have combined them or even utilized them or even finding correlations and see if we can derive and predict the market previously was very, very limited. Mm -hmm. And uh, there has been a lot of fintech um, involvement on enhancing the ability of how we, can, how we can digest all these data and try to come up with a model on predicting the future better. Are you finding that there's a lot of fintechs out there trying to do variations of what you just described? Mm. Um, and there's a lot of firms that are also, you know, I'd say any big financial institution is trying to, you know, get its hands around its own data first and then it can add on new things. Mm. How successful are firms at this now? Um, 
is is it becoming standardized? Are these fintechs kind of starting to look the same? Or is there a real difference in what they can do and the way that data can be uh, amassed and analyzed just internally? So I think I highly recommend anyone who has access to uh, take a look at the Gartner's report mm -hmm. on AI on data analytics. And they actually break this into many, many smaller fields. So it really depends on what we're talking about. So let's just pick data analytics, um, which is an age-old field. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that's happening over there. So one of the key thing is, even from Gartner's point of view, as well as from our observation, Number one is data scientists, the, the guys who can actually work on AI as well as analyze the data trends yes. are very difficult to find. Right. Now, um, what we are trying to encourage is we're trying to grow a group of citizen data scientists where they don't have the formal trainings, but we can use tools that, that, that's available in the market and help them become people who can actually see a trend or, or see certain information in so the data. So crowdfunding trend spotters. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, for example. We're, we're actually the official word is citizen data scientist. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of tools in the data science space where they can help um, normal Joes like you and me, for example, and, and we'll be able to detect and test for features using an AI model that they have pre previously built. And one of the great thing is, it's actually very easy to get into deep learning AI just by picking up TensorFlow, start reading a couple of uh, quick pages and, and copy and pasting a couple models. Mm -hmm. Then you can quickly get into this field. But how do you get really deep and start producing results? That takes years yeah. of research and understanding what the basic concept is. And so there's people out there that have the capacity to, to have that understanding, but they are looking for, these would just be, they might be market professionals or they might be hobbyists, but yep. they are able to, how, how do you find these people? How do you get them to be aware that, you know, you've got a, 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 a venue for them to demonstrate their ideas and, and get paid for them if they work? Well, that's actually two separate questions. Okay. One is how do we find them? How do you find them? Um, they're quite difficult to find, but they're a very small group of people who actually knows each other, right. to tell the truth, if I'm hiring in Hong Kong. And uh, you can easily identify one of them by asking the right level of questions right. and asking what have you done and why did you do it in this way and what's the reasoning, what kind of paper are you referring to and et cetera, et cetera. So it's very easy to identify who's top of the line, who's medium, who's a citizen data scientist. Um, but how do I keep them is by having a very open research environment where basically what we mean by research is it doesn't necessarily have to produce results. Mm -hmm. You just have to show us that you're doing something and that something makes sense in a business case. Whereas if you talk about project, project always have a result, always have an end date always have a, a, a feature you're trying to add. But research doesn't necessarily have an end result. It could be a completely failed research, but at least you're going in the right direction and, and doing the right thing. I think from a management perspective, is that is how we're keeping our researchers, is by providing them with an environment where they're not pressured to produce business benefit, but yet we provide them enough business insight that they know what is the right thing to research on. And is this uh, citizen data scientist program 
leading then to the product side internally? Absolutely. Yeah, so um, the volume prediction is uh, something we continue to improve, um, uh, obviously, through the research program. But citizen data scientists is when we try to hire a data scientist and we're not able to. So we try to uh, get our internal staff more trained on data science and becoming more of a data scientist. How critical is it for a bank to be able to compete I mean, it's a stupid question. It's very critical, but uh, to, to, you know, on, on this basis of having people who can who can do this stuff. But let's say, how easy or how easy is it to compete? Uh, where where do you think you Daiwa stands up in the pecking order when it comes to being able to whether develop your own staff or find people or recruit them through this uh, citizenship program that you've got? Uh, you know, do you have the tools uh, with your people uh, that you you need? Um, we never have enough tools. Mm -hmm. So the key thing is um, with competition, um, obviously we're not a uh, bulge bracket firm, right. uh, not a globally bulge bracket firm, where we don't have billions of US dollars put into IT, uh, as well as uh, um, almost to a billion put into innovations. Um, so we don't have the dollar funding behind it, but we have the right idea, and we're trying to do the right thing. We're focused on small areas, so we know exactly what we're trying to produce. Um, now, do we have the right tools? We never ever, and in fact, nobody will ever ever have the right set of tools. Mm. Um, that's something we have to figure out as a team. But one of the key things is we collaborate with each other. So among different banks, we collaborate with each other, trying to figure out where our focus is on. Um, and that's why we joined the FinTech Association of Hong Kong right. and various other associations, not only to learn what's happening in the FinTech world, but also communicating with various banks. Obviously, we don't share the details, but we do share general ideas and, and how do we improve yeah. as a team. Then let's end this uh, discussion on, uh, on the collaboration issues. You're also a member of R3 and some other things. So what's the role of when we're talking about collaboration, um, consortium, and then outright competition? How has mm. that, that changed? So competition is always there. Um, you will never see two banks trying not to compete with each other because that's very difficult to do. But collaboration is required. So um, one of the key things is, for example, the classic um, client onboarding requirements or the trade finance problem that blockchain have, helps to resolve, mm -hmm. since you mentioned on three. Um, so from a blockchain perspective is if you build a blockchain just completely within your organization, it makes no sense at all. Right. And that's actually a very dumb way of using distributed ledger technologies. You, you, you could rather just use a, a database a to build the same yep. thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, um, we need a consortium so the banks can find certain problems that we can resolve Although the trust is not 100% there because we cannot disclose our client names, but we can hash the client names and cross-check with each other and see if the same client has already passed certain uh, level of KYCs. Right. Then through that consortium, we can minimize our waste um, as a group, but we still offer our unique services for our clients where we continue to have a competition. What do you think in one or two years from now, what will be different about the way you do business or work with your clients that is not uh, existing today? Um, number one is big data, AI. So I continue to see that we will be able to predict um, and help the client in areas that the client may not even know they need it. 
<laughs> That's one example. And number two is uh, I'm seeing that, for example, using distributed ledger technology will be able to reduce a lot of operational waste that we currently produce. For example, the cross-checking of statements or onboarding and et cetera, et cetera. So I see cost reductions. I see uh, additional benefits for the clients. I see more electronicification of orders and making the market more efficient. Great. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. Huayi, always a pleasure. And I look forward to covering all of these other trends that you've outlined. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I'm James Lindsay, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the commercial director of Digifin Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again and share it on social media so your friends can find it too.